Good morning. So for those of you that have uh, maybe visited in the last few weeks, first of all, let me introduce myself. I'm actually the pastor here at the church. Uh, some, of, some people have visited and said, do you actually have a senior pastor, a lead pastor? Yes, and, and yes, I vacation in the Mecca vacation capital of the world called Kansas. Just returned from there, and, uh, and so it's, it's one of the best places to go, relax, and slow life down just a little bit. And, uh, and so if you are new, we say welcome to you, and we are the home of the largest pavilion in Lidditz. <laughs> Picnic tables will be arriving next week, we'll be pouring the floor, and we'll be done with the project as is, right? But... Uh, wasn't it cool? Now, again, this is speaking to kind of my historical experiences, but in my hometown, my, my family and other people would wash their cars on Saturday, so when they drove their cars to church on Sunday, they would be nice and clean. That would be an unwise move over the last few weeks here at LAFC because of the stone lot, uh, but we don't have that anymore. Isn't that great? It's good. So we finally have blacktop, and it's nice and clean. The rest of it will get done once the, the big construction equipment is no longer using this front space. And uh, we'll be moving into the offices here in the next few weeks and uh, in uh, September, a little late September. And, uh, and it looks like somewhere around the beginning of March, we'll be worshiping in the new area. And then we'll begin to remodel this space for the youth and teenagers here. And uh, so the project overall will be done by the end of the school year. Uh, so, which, by the way, begins this week for some and in a couple weeks for others. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> Nothing from the comment over here. Um, to be expected. Well, so when you go on vacation, I, this is where husbands and wives get a lot of time together, and some of the things that can create conflict in the relationship can show up. We also get to spend time with our kids, and, and then also, again, where the different things that can create conflict with your kids can show up. And, and, uh, but nonetheless, you still are able to have a good time. I, let me just show a picture here. So, you know, the last two weeks I've been traveling. We drove 1,200 miles out to the middle of the state of Kansas and, and then spent some time in Kansas City and so on. Um, but as part of the journey, uh, something that shows up between my wife and I is when I go to tell stories like with my family, my relatives out in, in Kansas, I use words like about or kind of or ish gets put on to the end of many words because my way of storytelling is giving gives me a lot of latitude to be mostly correct <laughs> and my wife is one that's very precise she likes to insert precision into it and and then she'll start correcting and I have to stop the story and I'm on a roll and she's got to like make sure well it's actually this time or and I'm like I'm using words so we had to kind of kind of come to an agreement that when I'm storytelling, it's okay for me to be imprecise, all right? It's, it's just fine. And wait, I just saw a husband and wife team up here, like elbowing, like it's okay. Steve, you and I, we can be in a support group together. But, uh, but anyway, you know, it just, it's part of the journey. But what it does is it reveals certain things about our personalities and our skills. For instance, you would not want me to be an engineer or a builder or an architect because I would use approximation. You don't want to do that. Now, this picture is actually taken 
630 feet above the ground in the St. Louis Arch. And we were up there in the top, and you get in these little barrels, and it kind of works you up to the top. And, uh, and then you learn about the building of the arch. How many of you have been in the, in the St. Louis Arch? It's pretty intimidating. Uh, my daughter getting into the barrel thing that, that takes you up to the top, she's like <laughs> holding the walls up as it's going up. And then by about halfway, she started laughing kind of getting her comfort zone. But uh, you get to the top and you learn about how they built from the bottom, each bottom end, and they met in the middle. Now, what's interesting is that they could not be off by more than, I think if I recall correctly, more than one one-hundredth of an inch when they put the final piece in at the top. So they're building from each end, coming to the middle, the final piece gets set in by a crane, and everything has to be so precise that it can't be any different than one one-hundredth of an inch, which is like looking at a piece of paper and how thin it is. That's the margin of error. Now, for me, I'm thinking if I'm designing this, if I get it within three inches, I'm feeling good about myself. <laughs> but honestly, if you have me engineering it, you would never want to go up into that. It would have been flawed, and it would be wrong. Now, my wife, she could probably design it, and it would be perfect, but it would also look prettier than what they have inside of there. But that's just how things go. Some of us are extremely detailed, and others of us are more approximate. How many of you put yourselves in the proximate category? There you go, all right? How many of you are the precise ones? Yeah, all right. I hope our CPAs in the room are, are raising their hands on precise. You know, it's interesting. Before God called me into ministry, I was actually going to pursue being a CPA. How would that be for your taxes? Ah, it's kind of close. It's almost there. I mean, that would have been disaster. I'd probably be in jail right now. But the point is, is that when you're doing something that requires truth, it's about being precise. But if you do something precise and truth when it talks about relationships and people, if you do it without love, then there's nothing really accomplished other than offense. And so one of the things that has been a concern to me is this idea that we're now seeing come out in the news about people who are in ministry, who are influencers, who are teaching the gospel or giving thought to Christianity are now disavowing their faith and are denying the idea that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. How did they get there? How did somebody get there when they were preaching or communicating that the way, the truth, and the life to find true life here on this earth is through one place, one person, and that's Jesus? How did they leave that after years of preaching it? When you look at the lives of many of those there that have gone through that path of once preaching it or singing about it or influencing and writing books about it, now all of a sudden are saying, no, I'm not with Jesus. How did they get there? And I believe it's this. They allowed the drift to happen in their soul because they let the objects of their mercy become their focus rather than the source of that mercy. So let me give it to you in a phrase to hear. It's easy for compassion's draw 
to become infatuated with the objects of mercy rather than being infatuated with the one who is full of abundant mercy. Let me say it again because I really feel this is important to hear. It is easy for compassion's draw. I'm drawn to be compassionate, to become infatuated with the object of the one I'm trying to be merciful towards, but losing the infatuation of the source of mercy I'm trying to provide. You see, I believe that in time, we can become guilty of being so infatuated with helping someone and drawing into their situation, being empathetic, that we lose connection to the one that has all the resources to truly help them. I want us to turn in our Bibles to James chapter 1. If you do not have a Bible, our ushers are walking up the aisle now. They'll be glad to provide you a Bible. And uh, this Bible, uh, you'll find the text we're starting in today on page 1135. If you do not own a Bible, we'd be glad to make this a gift to you. Otherwise, you can just simply borrow it during the service. But in James chapter 1, one of the most popular common verses in regards to mercy ministry is quoted in this verse, and it's usually verse 27. But we usually only quote the first part of the verse, and we often do not connect with it the verse that leads into it. And so we're going to begin today with verse 26. And we're asking ourselves, how do you compassionately help people who are in distress without being sucked into the problem and becoming part of the problem and or not being able to be a resource to the things that can truly help because you've disconnected from the source of mercy. So the question is that, and we're going to look in James chapter 1, some warnings and some encouragements about how to be compassionate and merciful. So verse 26. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So the common phrase that gets said out of this text is, this is the religion that our Father accepts as pure and faultless, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, period. And that's where most people stop, and that's where also people have begun when reading that phrase. But the wholeness of the text begins in verse 26. There's more going on in the, in the whole book of James and in the first chapter. But in this context of mercy, look at what it says in verse 26. Those who consider themselves religious, but do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, have deceived themselves and their religion is worthless. Then the context of what mercy looks like in a good religion, the one that God calls as a pure and faultless religion is the one who looks after or widows and orphans in their distress and, yes, is not polluted by the world. So let's break this down. The marks of a worthless faith. All right, so that's where we're going to go. So we're going to look at this text. We're going to begin with what are the marks or the descriptions 
of a worthless faith. Or in other words, religion. Now, we, talk, we don't refer to ourselves as a religion. We refer to ourselves as one who are in a relationship with Jesus. But in the text, James refers to it as a religion. So there's who consider themselves religious, but do not. So here we go. The marks of a worthless faith or religion is, number one, a person with a flippant tongue. A person with a flippant tongue. In other words, they don't care too much to guard what they say. They just simply say it. They don't think it's any big deal. They don't think it's any big deal that I might worship God with one, in moment, one moment with my, my voice or my tongue and another moment offer curses and so on and different things just to impress those around me. We may not consider it a big deal that we are kind of glorifying the story, making it beyond what it actually is, when in reality it misleads the person to believe something about you that isn't really exactly true. You know, it's just okay. You see, the tongue is the first place that you can find evidence of what's truly going on in the si inside of an individual. It's just reality. The tongue is the first evidence as to what's really going on inside of someone. So a mark of a worthless faith is somebody who's just simply flippant with their tongue. They don't care. They just say whatever. They might worship on a Sunday, or they might even listen to worship music on a radio. They might uh, make all these right decisions about what they do or don't do, but they just really are kind of flippant with their tongue. They just don't care. Which then leads to the second thing. Having an ambivalent and dismissive spirit. A person who is flippant with their tongue has a very, what should I say, ambivalent or dismissive spirit. It's like, ah, no big deal. If I, if I do this, even though it's, you know, not so good, I, it's okay. It, I'm fine. I can justify it. You see, these are patterns that basically are, you know, there's no real true foundation of truth. You can kind of bend it. Interesting thing happened in the news that I read yesterday. I don't know if it came out a few days before, but I read it yesterday. And, and it was the story about the ongoing issue of these sneaker companies spending big bucks and paying off college students who are not supposed to receive money and paying for them to go to certain schools that use their sneaker. And it's been public about Adidas and Reebok. But yesterday, I read an article where Nike is now admitting to following suit. But in their statement, they say this, when our enemies chose to do such things we despise and go against our core values. We felt compelled to have to do the same thing. And we're so ashamed of what our enemies have done and have ruined the sport. <laughs> and I'm just reading this, it's like, so basically they admit that they have done exactly the same thing, but they have a higher standard but since the standard of prevalent, you know, prevailing work that they were starting to lose athletes to these other schools, that they must do the same thing. They kind of had a, an ambivalent 
nature to themselves. And, and yeah, they did smell. Um, and, and, and they were dismissive in spirit. They, they basically chose, you know, the world is going this way. Even though our values say we should do this, the world is going this way. So we felt compelled to join. Which then leads to the final point of what I think is a mark of a worthless faith is you're just careless with actual formation of truth. Truth is whatever you make it to be. And, and maybe the masses decide what is truly true. And so we let the masses form truth for us, which is the point that I think is happening is that Nike was choosing a different path that was better, only to find themselves, well, culture's going this way. We don't want to get left behind, so we're going to join them. Fascinating. But again, these are marks of a person who claims to be religious, but whose faith is worthless. In fact, has no impact, has nothing to provide for someone else because there's really no source behind it other than themselves. But here's the marks of an impactful faith. Let's look at the same text and look at it and flip it around. You could say that the person then, based on this text, the person who has a faith that will truly impact someone else is one who is careful with their words. They're careful with the words. They realize that words matter. Words can have an impact. Words can tear down and they can build up. And so they're careful with the words. There's, there's a, measure, a measure of discipline that is, that's inserted in this that they realize out of character, I have to be careful with what I say. Which then, again, connects to the middle point of what is said in verse 26 where it says, these people who are religious but don't keep a tight rein on their tongues, they deceive themselves. In other words, when you start dismissing things, as being no big deal or being a proxy. Well, I was mostly true. I was mostly right. Or my intentions were good, my actions were wrong. So we don't have to apologize. We don't have to say we were wrong. When we become dismissive and ambivalent like that, our character is truly deceiving itself. And then ultimately... We're beginning to walk away. We're beginning to see things very differently. You see, the mark of an impactful faith, they realize that every word counts. Our words matter. We're careful with it. And therefore, we're accountable to others in order to avoid self-deceit because we're very willing to convince ourselves we're okay. When I was a, a young kid living in that small town in Kansas, when I would go to the library to get books, I would always go to the history section and pull down books from World War II. I'd look at the pictures. I would read whatever stories seemed fascinating to me. And, and one story kind of stood out. And again, I haven't read this in years. But it talks about this plane that was a search plane. And it was going towards, it was meaning to go a certain route. And it was going to land on, on a different island. It was in the Southern Pacific. And, it's, and these islands were miles and miles and miles apart. They discovered that their instrumentation was off by just a single degree. 
but they flew according to that instrumentation in the direction they thought they were going, but it was off by a single degree, and they flew it for several hundred, maybe even thousands of miles. I can't remember the details. What they discovered is that the longer you go being a degree off, you end up becoming further away than when you had started. And this plane ends up in a place that they shouldn't be, and they end up spending their time, that crew ended up being in a prison camp for the rest of the war because they landed in the wrong place. All because of one degree off. Now going back to my original point, we are seeing religious leaders, those who call themselves Christians, all of a sudden disavowing themselves from the faith. How did they get so far away? Well, it's because there was something at the beginning that they were maybe just a degree off. There was this influential pastor from Michigan that used to produce videos that were great discussion starters for youth ministry. And I would use this person's videos regularly. But as time went on, this person began to become more focused in on chastising the church for not being compassionate and empathetic and merciful to those who were poor and needy. It was accurate words. It was a needed message. But as time went on, you stopped hearing less about Jesus and more about the poor and needy. Years go by. And the next thing I, you know, this man basically has disavowed biblical authority. He's now considered a heretic within the Christian church after years of being such an influence in it, and a teacher and a discussion starter for talking about scriptures. You see, over time, something happened where Jesus quit being the center of which he was speaking from. And he was one degree off while doing something that Jesus would have loved, which is meeting the needs of the poor and the needy. Over time, his accountability was waning. Why? Because at the end of verse 27, he had become deceit. He had come under self-deceit because he was polluted by the world. At the end of verse 27, after talking about that the religion that God calls pure and faultless is the one who cares for the orphan, cares for the widow, and is not polluted by the world as they're caring. That's the key in this. You see, as we show mercy, as we show love, you have to allow truth to be the navigation by which you offer that mercy and that love. So they'd become careless in forming truth if, they, if these leaders had gone that direction. And over time, then they quit connecting to the source of truth. So in the mark of an impactful faith, we must be rooted in the word of truth, informing your worldview. As you interpret the needs in society for the poor, the needy, the orphan, the widows, the heartbroken, the broken relationally, the broken sexually, the broken emotionally, that we are rooted in truth so that we are offering them something that can actually heal them. You see, if you disconnect from the truth, then all you are offering is you. If you disconnect from the truth, all you are offering is you. And quite frankly, no one individual in here has enough resources to meet the needs of another.
But when you're connected to God and the source of truth, then you have infinite opportunity to speak truth and offer resources that can transform a life and truly meet their needs. Jesus is the best example of what it means to be merciful, compassionate, not lacking in truth, not lacking in connection to the Father God while looking at the objects of his mercy. And in those texts, you can find many of them where Jesus is the one that is going to the orphan. It was him, Jesus, again, that was going to those that were ostracized by society and disconnected. It was Jesus that was getting accused of hanging out with drunkards, with sinners, with Gentiles. Jesus was willing to put his reputation at risk to meet the needs of those who were not accepted well in society. So Jesus was a man of compassion. But yet it was also Jesus who spoke very truthfully in the compassion moments. The woman at the well, she was needing something that was beyond just the thirst of the moment, but something that was going to transform our lives. And what did Jesus do? He gave her water that would never cause her to thirst again. He gave her the truth about him and about her. She rushes back into the city and says, come hear this man who told me everything I ever did. <laughs> Isn't that something? She goes back into town. She's a woman that had been caught in adultery multiple times. She goes back into town and says, come meet the man who told me everything I ever did. And those people are probably thinking, well, that's a long list. So they go out to see this man, and it says that many believed in Jesus on the account of her testimony. So by Jesus not only showing compassion and mercy towards her, he also spoke truth to her about her life, and the combination of mercy and compassion and truth changed her life and her village. That's just one example. But now I want to get into where Jesus teaches on this issue. Matthew chapter 26. I want us to all turn there. If you have the Bibles that we handed out, this will be on page 929. So Matthew chapter 26. And I love this context because I believe Jesus speaks to the heart of the matter when it comes to our, our, the tension of showing mercy, but also at the same time staying connected to Jesus and truth. So Matthew chapter 26, we're going to begin by reading in verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. When she poured on his head, when she poured it on his head, he, as he was reclining at the table, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you but you will not always have me. When she poured out this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached, throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory 
of her. So what's the story? Why would a woman take perfume, pour it over a man's head, beginning to take care and nurture Jesus in front of a group of people, but take a perfume that was worth a year's worth of wages? I mean, how many of us would be so infatuated with an individual that we would blow an entire year's salary to show our care and admiration? Well, you need to understand why somebody would do that, and her story is familiar to you if you know the scriptures. She is Mary, the one who sat at Jesus' feet while her sister Martha was busy in the kitchen. Remember that? And Martha got all bothered because her sister was not helping her in the kitchen, not helping take care of the needs since there's all these guests. And she even interrupts Jesus to say, Jesus, can you talk to my sister who is not helping me in the kitchen right now? And Jesus basically tells her, she's chosen the better. She's chosen to be with me. But that's not the only moment, and that's probably not why you would blow an entire year's salary on somebody just to show your admiration and care. You see, just days before this incident, Mary and Martha had a a brother named Lazarus. Lazarus died of a sickness. Several days later, Jesus calls him out of the grave, and he comes back to life. If you are grieving a lost family member only to have him come back out of the grave because an individual showed power and authority over the grave, do you think you'd be enthralled and filled with worship towards that individual? Absolutely. Hence the moment where she took a year's worth of wages and showed her love towards Jesus. But to learn from this story now, we have to take the view of the disciples. They see this happen. They know the value of what was just uh, put on Jesus. And so what do they do? Jesus, you got to be kidding me. This, you should not be doing this and, and, and allowing her to do this. Now, the disciples, this is where I, I'm going to project a moment what's going on inside of their mind. I don't think they're actually concerned about the money that's being invested in a single moment for the sake of not being able to help the poor. I've got a feeling, and maybe some of you will agree with me, i got a feeling that was just a good cover story because they know no other story would satisfy Jesus. You see, I think what's really going on inside their mind is like, that's a year's worth of wa- We could have traveled forever on that money. We could have done this. We could have done that. We could have built a pavilion and lit it for crying out loud. <laughs> but we know Jesus isn't going to like that. So it's like, Jesus, do you know how many poor people we could have helped with that money? You catching my thinking on this? You see, they pulled out what they knew would matter to Jesus' heart. And what matters to Jesus' heart, they know clearly, is he cares about the poor and the needy. But in this case, he basically says this, money can help, but it is not the answer. Money can help, 
When doing things to help other people, trying to help them out of their their situations, you know, the orphans and the widows, uh, the poor, those who are in need of counsel. Yes, money can help, but it is not the answer. Another thing that's being exposed in this is we often get caught up in the tyranny of the urgent or the tyranny of the moment where it's like, this is an awful situation. We got to help them. And we rush to help them with our money and our time and we fail to give them the truth that can transform their lives and get them out of the situation. So when mission organizations began to help these needy children in other parts of the world, and they get so enthralled with making sure they have enough food for them, shelter for them, and clothes for them, but then they do nothing else for them, all they've done is help them live another day. That's it. They didn't offer anything of truth. Jesus basically implies this. You cannot forsake time with Jesus to serve in the name of Jesus. That's the story of Mary's life. You cannot forsake time with Jesus in order to serve in the name of Jesus. You must remain connected to Jesus in order to truly be a benefit to the poor and the needy. Next, I would say this. Your vision in life cannot be seen outside of serving Jesus. Again, if you want to understand what God says is a pure and faultless religion, you have to understand that your vision in life can't be the object of the mercy. Your vision in life must be to serve Jesus. And through that relationship, yes, you can serve the poor and the needy. Again, this connects the idea you can't serve in the name of Jesus if you are not connected to Jesus. You must not forsake your time with Jesus. Mary proved that over and over. She was with Jesus at the time when others were trying to work. She's now worshiping Jesus when others were just thinking about, well, you could have done the money this way. You could have served this. You could have served that. Missing out. It's about Jesus. He's the one that can truly change a person's life. In verse 13, when Jesus closes this whole thing, he says, truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the entire world, what she has done will be shared and told in memory of her. In other words, the legacy of worship and generosity towards God matters more than your merit badges of trying to impress God with your mercy. You hearing me? The legacy of worship and generosity towards God matters more to him than your merit badges of mercy that you're trying to impress him with. Let me tell you a story in closing. A young man that I knew at my former church that had gone uh, and done some pretty incredible things. In fact, this was about 10 years ago. As a junior in high school, he had raised more than $100,000 for children in Uganda that were not being seen by the rest of the world. A film crew had gone in and seen these children that were living in hiding places without any adults or care for them. 
He was so moved by the video that he began to platform opportunities to raise money for those children. And he raised thousands of dollars. Now you need to understand that he was able to do this in context that he was the son of parents who were very wealthy. Very wealthy. Very well known in that part of the city. Who were also very connected to Jesus and loved Jesus. And were very generous with their money. But this young man had chosen to reject the faith of his parents at the time. And say that he didn't feel that there was enough compassion and mercy from the church towards children like that. And he was going to do something about it. He even got to the place is that the way God is taught in the Bible or the God that I would say is taught at my church doesn't care about these kids, but I do. And he raised lots of money. He was being applauded by the media. TV stations that we watch here showed his story. Newspapers in that area shared his story. His parents were grieved over his lack of faith, but they were impressed by his compassion. So I convinced them to let me take him with me to South Africa. So he goes with me to South Africa, and my challenge to him was this. I want you to take notice of what's going on there and apply it to the principles that you've been applying to what you're doing in Uganda. Again, he's never even gone to Africa before. So this is his first time on the continent. So we go there. Night two. Just he and I are in this one room, uh, sleeping next to a room full of boys at the school we work with there called Aurora. In the middle of the night, we began to hear screaming coming from the room. It didn't take but a few moments, and the, the dorm parent comes knocking on our door and says, come help, please, come help, with this broken English. We go in there, and the boy is screaming, holding his right side. And through the whole situation, I'm like trying to figure out what's wrong, and, and finally the boy, through the help of the interpretation of, of the other man, says that the pain is coming from his side because a witch doctor had stuck a voodoo doll in the right side of, and that said this voodoo doll represents you. The great power will inflict pain upon you. And this young man is screaming in pain with horror and terror in his face. This young man that I brought from the States that is, that is at best agnostic is seeing this here and I say, if you know how to pray at all, Pray now that God will deliver this young man. So I put my hand on this young man and I said, prayed in the name of Jesus for this evil spirit to leave him. And that he would be able to rest well and that he would wake up filled with joy like he's never felt before. The prayer was short and about as simple as I just said. The young man laid back within five minutes he was whimpering a very small cry and fell asleep. The young man that traveled with me, he and I go back to our rooms, we fall asleep. The next morning we're woke up at about 5.30 in the morning with song coming from that room. And when we looked, it was the bunkmate of the person who had been screaming the night before. And he was there worshiping with the singer. 
as the day went on, we kept hearing reports that this young man who had been screaming the night before was going around and just was being a blessing to other people to where teachers said in their teachers meeting, what happened to him? Something is different. I finally get to talk to the young man at about four in the afternoon. And he says, I have been filled with joy like I've never been filled before. The young man that I traveled with me is hearing this, observing this. He went on to see more things happen throughout our time there. Yes, we visited the shanty towns. Yes, we visited all the places where these kids had come from and the darkness that they come from. But this young man learned a lesson and he shared as much with me when I asked him. Said, so what if all we did was brought them food and drink and clothes? What would be their state? He said, we would keep them alive for another miserable day. You see, that's the difference when you only offer mercy and compassion, but you offer nothing that can change their life. That is the message we have in Jesus Christ. He is in the business of changing lives. And he has changed my life. He has changed many people's lives here in this room. And we're to let that be an overflow of the mercy and compassion we show to others so that we can share the ultimate thing that can heal another individual. And that is the truth that Jesus loves you and he wants to change your life. Let's pray. Jesus, I recognize that my resources are pretty limited. And if all I offered another individual was me, I could only take them so far. But when I connect to you, <laughs> all the resources of heaven are right there. And so God, I just ask if there's anybody here that is struggling with belief, that is struggling with the idea of truth of your heart, and your nature, your moral code that you wish to speak into the life of another, I ask God that you would convince them now of their need for you and they would experience a joy that they've never experienced before. I pray this in the name of Jesus who's done all that work. Amen. So truth is that every single person here in this room has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're imperfect. We're in need of saving. Romans 6.23 also says that the wages of our sin has earned us death, but there is a gift from God that is found in eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to God but through him and him alone. That's the truth. And if our compassion and mercy lacks that truth, then all we've done is help them live another miserable day. And I don't want that. I want them to not only be, have their needs met, but then for them to find hope that carries them into the next day. That hope which is found in the anchor of Jesus Christ. So if you did not know Jesus Christ and you've never given your life to him, I hope you'll walk away today knowing that hope surrendering your life to him. If you would like to talk to somebody about that, we'll have people underneath the cross to my right, your left, that would be glad to pray with you. I'll also be up front and available if you wish. We want you to go out knowing the hope that we've talked about today. 
But to those of us who have known Jesus for a long time, let's not offer the resources of you and you alone. Let's offer the resources of you that is found in a greater resources in Jesus. Because Jesus in you can change lives. And that's what he wishes to do. So go with compassion and mercy and with the truth of the gospel. Amen. You're dismissed.